Just a heads up before we begin this episode, the Baron of Botox deals with difficult topics, including depression and suicide. It is not recommended for young audiences. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for information on resources for anyone who is suffering from depression or suicidal thoughts. Let's begin the show. Like Big Medical, the beauty business has its own insider rewards program. A 2016 study in JAMA Dermatology, a monthly peer-reviewed journal, found that dermatologists received more than $34 million from industry affiliates in 2014, and that most of this money came from pharmaceutical companies. And the top 10% of dermatologists received 90% of the total payments. When I search the names of some of Fred's closest colleagues and peers, I find, in the past few years, annual receipts for anywhere between $4,600 to $132,000 for such things as comped meals, travel, and unspecified consulting fees. When I search the name Fred Brandt, only one payout from 2014 is listed, $16.78 in food and drink from a company called Valiant Pharmaceuticals. Jonah Shacknai, the former CEO of Medicis, who first met Fred in 2005, says his friend was all but impervious to industry perks. I think he was generally suspicious of industry. He knew that he was an enormous customer, maybe the largest in the world, and that most people would feign friendship or try to get his attention and interest to increase their business. So I think he had a realistic and sort of healthy view of the relationship between industry and physicians. And I think he understood when friendships were genuine and when they weren't, because we used to gossip about a lot of people. And I think he had very clear bearings on who was a friend and who was a professional colleague or someone that wanted something from him. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox, Episode 8, Under Siege. Two weeks after unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and that haunting send-up. Dr. Flump is here. (laughs) Dr. Brandt attended the annual American Academy of Dermatology meeting held in San Francisco. Though he was rattled by the Netflix series, he also had a full schedule that included demonstrations and workshops a course on Botox basics, and a scientific symposium called Tips for Lips. This was not unusual for Dr. Brandt. One year, he appeared as a speaker at 16 different dermatological conventions. Dr. Tina Ulster, the laser queen of D.C., appeared on two panels with Dr. Brandt at the meeting, a live demonstration on injecting techniques and a symposium on methods to make treatments more comfortable for patients. She says these conventions are pretty high stakes. Over the last 20 years, the cosmetic portion of dermatology has grown tremendously. And the biggest rooms in terms of the lecture halls where the lectures are delivered are really all cosmetic dermatology. So we have a lot of workshops where there are live demonstrations of doing injections, doing laser treatments. It depends on which workshop you're in. And literally, there are uh, upwards of 2,000 people in a single hall who are not only looking at these live injections, but they're seeing them on big screens as they're being done. So it's a well-run, very intense time for both the lecturers as well as the people who are in attendance. And Fred's seminars were a fan favorite, not only for his scientific insights, 
but for his sense of humor and reverence for the work. His colleagues always thought him odd and quirky, but recognized that he was really a visionary in aesthetic dermatology. And I think understood that, that while an unusual guy, his contributions to the field were extraordinary. That's Jonah Shacknai again. Jonah made an absolute fortune in 2012 when he sold Medicis to Valiant Pharmaceuticals, the same company that spent a whopping 16 bucks on Fred in 2014 for $2.6 billion. Jonah is a keen observer who gained insights into the beauty industry by analyzing, in part, how women behaved at department stores. He told W Magazine in 2008, I used to watch the way they would look in the mirror. Their habits were fascinating to me, the way they interacted with and trusted the consultants. Of all the people I've talked to about Fred, Jonah seems to have the greatest insights into the myriad ways his friend was an outsider, in both his field and the world at large. Fred didn't fit in to the capitalist churn of the beauty industry. He wasn't very good at being a celebrity or at weathering the criticism of an intrigued but skeptical public. And he wasn't particularly well-versed on the nuances of the social contract. But he tried. There was definitely a playful side to him. He sang a lot, just sort of spontaneously, not necessarily established songs, but ones that he would make up. And I recall many, many walks with him in Miami where we would go into a restaurant with his dogs and people would complain about the dogs or, you know, not be happy that they were wandering around the restaurant. And he would just sort of go up to the people and offer them a free treatment in his office, start singing. In his moments, he was a very light good-natured guy that I think uh, just wanted a little attention and to try to make people happy. And I think he tried very hard to project himself, sometimes awkwardly, to be a little more gregarious and extroverted. But fundamentally, he was a guy that just wanted to sit around with a few close friends and his dogs and could be very happy watching movies. I mean, he was not a guy that liked to go out and meet new people, but I think he understood professionally the importance of that and did his best. It was a learned behavior or a performance. I think his presentation was often as needed to try to attract attention and engage people, even though he fundamentally was uncomfortable doing it. The last time Jonah saw Dr. Brandt was at the American Academy of Dermatology meeting in March. They had lunch together, and he could see that his friend was preoccupied. He wasn't the only one who felt like something was off. Brandt's colleague, Dr. Jolie Kaufman, also noticed that he was uncharacteristically low energy. So we were at the AD together, um, the American Academy of Dermatology, and there he was a little quiet. And I noticed he was quiet, but he had been traveling, and so he said he was tired. When Fred was in a good mood, you know, everybody around him was happy. When things started, you know, getting a little bit more on the downside, you also felt that from him. But he wasn't just tired. In addition to the Netflix show, there had been other, more clandestine setbacks. An A-list client was reportedly irate when she developed a hard nodule in her face after Brandt injected her with the filler Voluma. One source told me that Fred was, quote, paralyzed with fear that he would lose her as a patient. According to friends, in the last months of his life, he became obsessed with having the filler taken off the market. Two people familiar with an incident that took place at the American Academy of Dermatology Convention told me Brandt was confronted by an employee for the manufacturer, Allergan. According to one eyewitness, quote, someone from the company 
a relatively junior person, was just berating him, asking him about his hygiene technique in the office, things that would be fantastically insulting to any physician. Allergan did not respond to multiple requests for comment, but a study published four months after Brandt died discovered that delayed-onset nodules developed in less than 1% of Voluma patients. Jonah still remembers how the drama weighed on his friend. Fred was always and only on the side of his patients. So how they looked and their level of satisfaction or delight with the things that happened in his office were really the paramount things affecting his self-validation. When he had happy patients, especially the celebrities that would talk about him, nothing would make him happier. So at one level, he was uncorruptible because if a product was not right for his patients, he wouldn't use it. A great example is that he observed some side effects in his practice with certain products. And even though those manufacturers were doing a lot of clinical studies or paying him honoraria to give talks, he was not at all reserved in sort of bringing these issues to the forefront. My observation over, I think we had lunch and spending some time with him alone, was that he was very concerned with his standing in the community. He had uh, been concerned about a couple of issues and he felt under siege from several of his colleagues and a couple of companies. And he really felt that his years of achievement in the category, really his vision were being undermined because he was trying to do the right thing for his patients in identifying issues. So I'd say that he was on the depressed side, but again, I use the word very cautiously because it was around one issue. Less than two weeks after the meeting, Fred Brandt was dead. When you're trying to piece together the last few months or weeks of someone's life, it can begin to feel like an abstract painting. The things people remember can take on new meaning in hindsight. Details become storylines. Dr. Alster remembers arriving at the dermatology meeting in San Francisco and running into her friend Fred Brandt in the lobby. I arrived at the nth hour, and he happened to be at the same hotel, and he was down in the reception area. So when I came through the door, you know, he's there large and like, oh, Tina, Tina. And I say, oh, Fred, how are you? And he was wearing this great sweater, black, my favorite color, with a big peace sign on it in rhinestones. And I said, oh, I love that sweater. He goes, oh, oh, take it. And I said, no. I'm just coming in. Don't don't even talk to me about it. And of course, we saw each other for the next few days during the meeting. And then lo and behold, a week after the meeting, after I came back to Washington, he had sent me a perfectly dry, clean sweater, literally off his back. And so it was one of those things that I got in the mail uh, around the time that things went south for him. So he was, I feel like he was thinking about me um, at the end of the day. It was a parting gift. He literally would have given that shirt off his back if I had let him, but it, was, it wasn't the right timing. But when I did get it, it was, it was quite the shock. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Dr. Rhoda Narens, who served on advisory boards with Dr. Brandt for 20 years, recalls a marked change in his personality. For the first time since she'd known him, it seemed like Fred wasn't performing for others. He was always fun and laughing. 
Not the last year, though. Not as much. The last few months, he was not as fun. He took a zillion vitamins. He would carry this Louis Vuitton bag that was like one of four that were made, and it was filled with vitamin bottles. I think it was hard for him to grow old. And Dr. Kaufman remembers things getting better at the end, almost as if the fog had lifted a bit. Before he passed away, I was out of town, and I spoke to him the day before, and he said he sounded good. He was at the museum in Miami, and he was outside. He seemed like he was upbeat, and he kept saying, everything's going to be great, everything's going to be fine. It was a beautiful day in Miami. He seemed upbeat, and he said... It was Passover, and I was saying that we would get together tomorrow to have Harosa together. And he said, great, come over in the morning. And he sounded upbeat. He didn't sound blue. They say that some people find closure in deciding that that's what they're going to do. And maybe that's why he sounded upbeat. I don't know. I go back over the conversation a million times. Then you think of the Fred that I know, and I think, would he have ever let on that he was going to do this? He would have never burdened somebody with the fact of knowing that. Is it for protecting people around him that he loves? Or was he okay because he had come to terms with the fact of what he was going to do and that that was an out for him? I don't know. Maybe both. He definitely sounded, he sounded okay. He sounded good. In the days before he died, Dr. Brandt made phone calls. He called Dr. Kaufman and his old pal, Roberta Abramson. He also called his friend, the legendary journalist and bon vivant, Joan Crone. Back in May, I went to meet with Joan at her apartment on New York's Upper East Side. Joan is a filmmaker and a former contributing editor at Allure magazine, where she began covering plastic surgery and beauty interventions in the early 90s, when she was in her 60s. The night before our interview, I offered to bring over some coffee, but Joan politely declined. Don't bring any for me, she emailed me well after I'd gone to sleep for the night. I'll make decaf in my little drip pot. I can make you a toasted bagel if you're hungry. I loved that. But if Joan sounds like the consummate grandma over email, in person is a whole nother story. At 92 years old, she's warm, but not sweet. Not exactly. Oh, how did I meet Fred? I met him because a press agent wanted me to come to a party. And I thought it sounded like he was over the top and there was hype. And I really was very skeptical when I met him or when I was about to meet him. And I came quite not in the best mood, like, oh, God, this is going to be some big party, and why are they doing this for doctors? (laughs) Joan Crone has spent the past 50 years poking holes in carefully curated facades. She has worked for the New York Times, New York Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal, where she was the paper's first-ever fashion reporter. Her 2017 documentary, Take My Nose, Please!, her first foray into directing, no less, was an astute commentary on women in comedy and the stigma surrounding plastic surgery. A review in The Hollywood Reporter describes it like this. Crone seeks to destigmatize not just cosmetic surgery, but vanity, and aims to cut through the hypocrisy and lies surrounding the booming industry. She's all about science. There's less bullshit in science. I'm one of the few people who read the scientific articles. I didn't just read the abstract. I read the articles. And my house is piled all over with medical journals. And I would read them every month because that was my job and I had to read them. I can tell when I read a study whether it's a good study 
whether I will trust that study. I mean, some studies I read and I don't trust. Joan's apartment is large and airy, but with little post-war nooks and crannies, like a galley kitchen where she prepares our drip coffee. In her modernist dining room is a formal mirrored table surrounded by clear cartel ghost chairs. Joan has experienced extraordinary sadness. In 1968, while on a humanitarian trip to what is now Sri Lanka with her first husband, a surgeon, their 16-year-old daughter contracted a deadly infection at a leper colony and died four days later. The loss sparked something in Joan. She started to write about the kinds of things most people don't usually think about, like grief therapy or the psychology of why we send Christmas cards. Later, as a beauty writer, she tackled topics including plastic surgery addicts who murder their doctors and all the gory side effects that come along with getting a butt lift. I ask her whether you can accurately cover the beauty industry and our collective obsession with youth without acknowledging the sadness and desperation that often lurks beneath it. She says no. I suppose you could. I think I gave me a special advantage because I covered death and dying for 10 years because I lost my daughter on one of these trips to Sri Lanka when she got a terrible sinus infection. So after that, I started, that's when I started writing, but I was covering design at the same time that I was covering death and dying. The people in design didn't know I was covering death and dying. The people in death and dying had no idea I was covering design. But I, I was doing both. So I had a lot of experience covering grief and suicide. I mean, After 92 years on this earth, she has a well-honed sense of situational irony. On JoanCrone.com, she writes, I found my real beat at Allure when I volunteered to interview four plastic surgeons and ended up having a facelift, not part of the assignment. For the record, both face-lift.com and beforeandafter.com swiftly redirect you back to joancrone.com. Who says a nonagenarian can't be an SEO all-star? In Linda Wells, the founding editor of Allure, Joan Crone found a kindred spirit. After I started doing my first stories, I said to Linda, give me this beat. I want this beat. I'm the oldest person here. I'm the only person who can appreciate this beat. All these kids think they're never going to lose their beautiful looks, and they are. And they don't know how they're going to feel. I understand. At first, she considered Dr. Brandt to be what she calls a study object, someone who sparks her curiosity. But soon, they struck up a meaningful friendship. Fred would ring her up when he was at her local juice shop or when he felt like indulging in chocolate sorbet. She says he was always on and performing when she saw him at the office, but that when he came over to chat, he could just be himself. She accepted him, quirks and all. So when other people made snap judgments about his appearance or suggested that somehow the way he looked was an invitation for ridicule, she got protective. When stories about him began appearing, like when the New York Times did a profile of him, people who knew me and knew that I covered plastic surgery would write to me, like people from out of town. Just, I saw this story in the New York Times, do you know this guy? And then they would often say something derogatory. And then I would always write back and say, you don't know what you're talking about. And this is, this is a great human being, and he's a great doctor. So thank you. But you can't judge 
just by the way he looks. And I understand what you're saying, but he's different, but he's terrific. I've heard this a lot, and by now, you have too. Fred Brandt was different than other people. He was more empathetic and far more naive. Stefan told me that early in his career, a company executive stole money from him and that the financial discrepancies were only revealed during an audit. A former employee told me that he had no idea how much things cost, that on paydays, he would retrieve piles of cash and extend his arms out like, take it. Fred Brandt may have been incorruptible, but he wasn't exactly circumspect. For all of his fastidious research, he never had a handle on the baser instincts of human nature. He wanted to absolve people of their insecurities and to share his medical discoveries with anyone who was interested. But he didn't consider the fact that generosity isn't universal. Here's Jonah again. So I think many other people were putting a needle into a wrinkle, filling it, and basically showing their patients that you don't have this wrinkle anymore. And I think Fred really looked at the face as a canvas and understood which products would work well in different places. I think he had a fantastic understanding of the physics or the geometry of the face and was very free in teaching those techniques at Symposia and other places. I think he really enjoyed sharing his insights. I think he fundamentally didn't see that as threatening because he didn't imagine anyone could do it as well as he. But he was generous, I think, in sharing his insights with other people. And I think it shaped the current uh, aesthetic. And uh, in truth, he and a few other people really developed this entire category and the look that seems to be desired when people go to see their dermatologists or plastic surgeons. Dr. Kaufman says the instinct to protect Fred from his own blind spots could take a toll. Fred was so good to everybody, even when they hurt him. That's the truth about Fred. Most people, I think, are better at walking away from those people that really hurt us, at least as we become adults. When we become adults, if people wrong us, you just decide, okay, I'm that person's, I'm, I'm going to stay away from them, or I'm not going to get involved with them in business, or I'm not going to romantically get involved with them, or whatever it is. That was something he never really grasped onto. And so I think Fred got hurt a lot, you know? As a friend of Fred's, you sometimes felt like you were being a protector because he was so giving and so kind that sometimes people hurt him and he had no way of stepping away from it or protecting himself sometimes. Even though he looked, he was famous and really he was just the leader in our industry. He brought things to aesthetic dermatology that no one ever dreamed of. I mean, he was such an innovator and such a genius and yet so fragile and hurt by so many that could sometimes feel his pain. I think also the position of being at the top, because he really was the top of his game. Being at the top, people always try to knock you down a little bit. So I think you have to be more resilient to be there. I'm not sure he was in a position to take what was handed to him for being at the top. Ultimately, the things that made Fred Brandt different, even exceptional, were the same things that made him a target. I don't think that Fred's Uniqueness was what killed him. I think it was his sensitivity from the time he was young. Fred had too many layers that were easily, that some people could easily pick on. So he was making himself a target for bullying. He was a target. And he had a very gentle, vulnerable personality and Public humiliation is one of the things that 
can cause people to kill themselves, but it's not that there are people who are, I mean, this is what I learned in studying suicide. Humiliation can be a reason for suicide, but everybody who's humiliated does not kill themselves. The Baron of Botox is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Justine Harmon. Executive producer is Jason Hope. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, with additional editing from Jasmine Cross and Jason Hope. Original music by Brandon Bush. Barbara Keene is our researcher and fact checker. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The Baron of Botox is a 10-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you or someone you know is struggling from depression, find local support and more resources by visiting NAMI, N-A-M-I If you are having suicidal thoughts, you can reach a trained crisis counselor by calling the toll-free National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK or texting NAMI, N-A-M-I, to 741-741. You are not alone. Thank you for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.